In this episode of our series on intimate partner violence in the LGBTQIA community, we're talking to educators, attorneys, law enforcement, and other experts who presented their findings about experiences of violence and abuse by LGBTQIA individuals at the 2022 Conference on Crimes Against Women. I'm Maria McMullen. And I'm Ron Corning. And this is Genesis, the podcast. And Jan Langbein is here with us, co-founder of the Conference on Crimes Against Women, CCAW. 17 years ago, it was founded. And I'm curious to know, Jan, at the time, 17 years ago, um, was the LGBTQIA plus community on the agenda? Was it something that the community that sought out solutions for domestic violence were aware of? It was not. It was not. We. It was a small conference at the beginning, 400 attendees, primarily from the state of Texas. Um, it is, and I do want to talk about what opportunities growing has led us to um, accomplish, but no, it wasn't. I'm sorry to say it wasn't. And when it, when it was presented in whatever form, I don't know if you remember the moment, the year, or how that conversation happened, was it ever met with any resistance or anybody saying, I don't know, is this really our issue? Is, is this what we should be dealing with? You know, I think not. If they did, they didn't say it to me. Yeah. But um, I think when we did start incorporating it into... Um, our curriculum at the Conference on Crimes Against Women, uh, I guess those who didn't think it was for them went to a different session, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but little by little, uh, it has been recognized as an understanding, I need this information. I'm a patrol officer in Hohokus, New Jersey, and I need to know how to do this better. Um, and that seems to be the brilliance of the Conference on Crimes Against Women. It's solution-focused. What er- what issues are you having in your community? Are you having trouble uh, arresting? Are you having trouble with cold case sexual assault cases? Are you having trouble with whatever? And the speakers, the conference is all focused on solutions to making this better. Speaking of solutions, I caught up with just a few of the speakers at the Conference on Crimes Against Women who presented on topics related to intimate partner violence experienced by individuals who identify as LGBTQIA+. Sarah Berlanga of the Women's Center of Tarrant County in Fort Worth, Texas, explained the root of all violence and how to address that violence. Inequalities and systems of oppression are the root of all violence, right? The, the violence is the tool um, that has been used to maintain power and control. Um, and so if we can create more equitable policies and a culture of equity, um, then that really is combating sexual and, and intimate partner violence. Ms. Berlanga continued by explaining the value of creating systemic change and how that benefits all individuals, including the LGBTQIA community. So I tend to look at issues from a community or societal level. Um, while I do train professionals who work with individual clients, um, I try to help them understand that there are ways that we can all be involved in creating systemic change and growth rather than just individual change and growth. Um, for example, you know, my presentation compared different states on policies that affect the LGBTQ community. Uh, And while at first these policies might seem 
like they're not related to sexual or intimate partner violence. Um, as we look deeper, we can see that systemic oppression leads to higher rates of, of violence against the LGBTQ community. Um, and this is because violence is the means that's used to gain and maintain power and control. According to the MAP project, eight states, including Texas, have what's called no promo homo or don't say gay laws. Um, and these laws bar or explicitly uh, restrict educators from discussing LGBTQ people or issues in public schools. Um, and this is important because it means that it's less likely that LGBTQ students will have access to comprehensive and inclusive sex education or education on recognizing healthy relationships. Um, and so this type of education, right, has a clear correlation with lower rates of unwanted pregnancy, with STIs, and with sexual and intimate partner violence. So having that comprehensive education actually reduces the rates of intimate partner violence. Additional solutions were offered by law enforcement at the Conference on Crimes Against Women, including Patrick Moog of the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office in Detroit, Michigan, who presented a case study about a rape investigation of a lesbian woman who was raped as a teenager by a male teen. Detective Moog helped us understand a little more about his approach and why these investigations are so critical. As a police officer... You want to protect everybody. That's why you become a police officer. You know, there's an old saying that you can't be everything to all people. Well, as a police officer, like it or not, that's our job. We're to be, we are the people that should be everything to all people. Uh, any type of crimes against person has always motivated me. Um, the fact that these victims of sexual assault are often overlooked, not believed, uh, overwhelmingly. I've, our unit, we've... we've convicted over 250 sexual assault suspects in the last seven years and of those cases in the cases that didn't go to trial 90 percent plus if not a hundred percent of the, our survivors their, their major one complaint other than the assault itself is that no one believed them from lgbtq communities they have a uh, you know, so many other things that they're fighting against, dealing with, uh, that I, as detectives, as a team, we have to, I think, go above and beyond to, to help them. Of all the LGBTQ members who are sexually assaulted, over 60% of them will attempt suicide at one time or, or more. Believing people who experience intimate partner violence is critical to their survival. As Michael Kremrein, sergeant with the Austin Police Department Child Abuse Unit, pointed out, determining predominant aggressors in an IPV case is critical to getting people to safety. Get officers to be much better at determining who the predominant aggressors are in these relationships because we're not getting it right. And there's a huge disproportionate amount of uh, dual arrests in situations, or if you happen to be a um, African-American couple, especially African-American males, just no arrests are being made, period. I think the first thing is, is being much better at using the tools we've used in heterosexual intimate partner violence cases of, of trying to figure out the predominant aggressor, but learning how to apply that uh, when we're dealing with queer identified or LGBTQI plus identified couples, because there's some unique power and control dynamics uh, in these situations, and we're just not familiar with them. So hopefully, as we do, we'll be much better at determining predominant aggressors. What we know is that uh, the statistics in the rate of intimate partner violence or in sexual violence is equal to, if not more, in the LGBTQI plus community as it is within the heterosexual community for most of the statistics that, um, and studies that are out there.
the latest study that just came out from uh, Gallup shows that one in, in five, so 20% of Gen Zers are identifying somewhere a part of the spectrum. We're going to be coming more and more of society is going to have more and more LGBTQI identified individuals in them. And so we have to start being better at being responsible and proper uh, investigators and supporters of this community because this is the way America's going. And so we need to start being better at figuring these situations out. And being better is in part what we hope to do with this conference on crimes against women and this podcast series. As Kimberly Crawford, training and outreach coordinator at the D.C. Coalition Against Domestic Violence, addressed in her presentation at the conference on crimes against women. As our services and responses to IPV and LGBTQIA plus relationships evolve, so must our language and understanding of what is at the core of this violence. So more often than not, when we hear the term gender-based violence, we assume it's exclusive to women. We statistically know that women are disproportionately victimized, but it's important that we don't isolate survivors who don't identify as women or on the gender binary. Power-based violence is a term that recognizes that crimes like intimate partner violence or human trafficking stem from the exploitation of power. It addresses those root causes of violence, which is power, rather than gender identity. And I think it's a much more inclusive reframe. If the exploitation of power is at the core of violence, solutions to address it, to address power and control, continue to be critical to ending the cycle of abuse and bringing survivors to safety. Jordan, when you, when you talk about how crimes against women relates to women who identify as gay or trans women, talk to me, if you can, a little bit about the the rate of violence and and what the, what the main hurdle to overcome is in trying to bring that number mm-hmm. down yeah, so what we know is that uh, clearly is seen is that rates of intimate partner violence within the LGBTQ community are higher than within the heterosexual community. So, for example, we know that one in three hetero women will report being abused by a male partner. Um, but concerningly, 43% of lesbian women will report experiencing intimate partner violence. And you'll still contend that that's underreported. Underreported. A higher number... That actually isn't a true reflection. Concern that it may be much higher than that, potentially. Um, And even more scary, Ron, is the idea that over 60% of bisexual women um, are are reporting experiencing incidences of interpartner partner um, abuse. And to your point, oftentimes not knowing where to reach out to help, not knowing who to call or if there is anybody that they specifically um, could call. And so one of the things that we work on at Genesis and are constantly trying to improve in and get better at is reaching out to that community to say, we are the people that you can call. We are able um, to have these conversations and to be um, a safe place for you to tell your story. Genesis offers a continuum of care that includes clinical counseling, legal services, advocacy, and other services that heal trauma. Other services like safety planning and offering resources to the LGBTQIA community are also critical parts of the Genesis continuum of care. Was there a red flag or a series of phone calls from women in same-sex relationships who said, I'm calling, but I'm not sure if you're the right place to call. I'm not sure if... What what has the evolution of that been in terms of women who identify as gay 
knowing that they can call you and find a safe place? You know, it wasn't external as much as it was internal. Really? Yes. We have, you know, we constantly for the last uh, almost 40 years have looked at our services and, and looked at roadblocks. I came in as the Tuesday morning volunteer. There was no reason they should have hired me, actually. I knew nothing about this. I'm not from this. And how She says now. <laughs> yeah, 40 years later, right? Now I know something about it, right? I would hire me now if I, if I had the opportunity. But the only way I knew how to do this job was to see what are roadblocks and what can we do to remove those roadblocks. So mom can't go to get a job if she doesn't have childcare. We put childcare on site. Mom can't, uh, you know, get her children, custody of her children if she doesn't have a lawyer. We put a legal clinic on site. Children weren't safe in the school in which they were enrolled. We put a school on site. Now that was 30 seconds worth of 30 years. But the problem that we came across is, okay, if we are doing a crisis intervention with somebody based on the assignment at birth or what's on their driver's license, it's just wrong. It's just not the right thing to be doing. And so a lot of what we have done over the years is like, okay, then what is the right thing to do? And so I pull my senior team around me and I say, we need to address this issue. What's that going to look like? What, what about this? And what about that? And what about staff? And um, I think just step by step, uh, it, it wasn't. It wasn't as clear as boom. Something happened this day. Jordan, do you think there were women who came into the shelter and masqueraded as as heterosexual mm-hmm. and been abused at the hands of a man when, in truth, they were in a same sex relationship? Absolutely. And I think I think there have been really resourceful individuals who have been able to seek services or even just incredibly brave because they didn't know for sure that we were safe for them, and they still reached out and called and tried and and gave us the chance to meet them where they're at. So I can think of a a couple of different situations where, um, you know, the first time that we did have a trans woman in our residential program and we were open to that, we were wanting that, but then this person's driving to our shelter and we want to make sure we get it right. We want to make sure, or at least we do the best that we can to support this person. And so that, that individual's bravery to reach out, I can't even imagine because of the fear of what could have happened. Well, I, I was going to say it's almost a different measure of desperation mm-hmm. that against all of it. their fears. Right. Against all odds, I'm going to reach out and try. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try this. Yeah, that's our, where I'm at. I'm, I'm to that mm-hmm. point where I will risk. And that's who calls us, heterosexual mm-hmm. or not. Uh, that's who calls us. This is, nobody wakes up and says, gee, I'd like to live in a shelter today. You know, speaking of shelters, um, it was something in episode one when we met with X mm-hmm. and talking about, uh, you know, if I go to a homeless shelter, Um, I actually ran our sister agency for a while, the Austin Street Night Shelter for the Homeless, and there was a trans woman there, and, you know, the logistics of the place really was a struggle for her, because all the men take a shower in one room, and all the women take a shower in another room, but she's supposed to sleep with women, but, you know, the men, she's in danger on the men's side. I mean, it was just a nightmare, and I... I appreciate you framing the realities and complexities of yeah, re- really giving everybody exactly what they need to feel safe and comfortable. It's not easy. It's it not needs to easy. be done, but we need to understand it's also not easy. And, and it so comes at an extra cost. What about the people on the cot next to her or the mat next to her? Not understanding what that's all about. Um, do am I comfortable sleeping next to a trans woman? So when we had our uh, one of our first trans women in Genesis Shelter, and it's completely different. It's not cots on the floor. It's a two story, beautiful, historic building. Bedrooms, bathrooms upstairs. Everyone has their own space. 
but um, the I was wondering how the clients would receive it. Now, if there were a problem, we had to think about that. If there's going to be a problem, then we would hold accountable the people causing the problem, whatever that is. Somebody stole my purse. And or- how do you identify someone who potentially could cause a problem? Mm-hmm. That's not easy to do. Jordan, not easy to do. Mm-hmm. Not easy to do. But what interesting, and I want to uh, make this point, was when that first uh, trans woman came in, everybody was fine with it. Everybody was fine. And then, of course, there was this one little child who, um, you know, from their mouths to God's ear, I guess, said, Mom, uh, in front of this uh, trans woman, I think that might be a man. And Mom said, no, honey, that's a woman. And that was the end of the whole conversation. That was We had how many meetings on this? And you know what? It was fine. Well, imagine if more conversations went down like that. I know, Mm -hmm. right? We've also had instances in which um, trans men have had to report as being a woman in order to come to our shelter. And so we recognize that and we acknowledge that in that that is not their true identity. And yet they were able to get themselves to a safe place because of the resourcefulness and the bravery. And so once they're in our shelter, then we're able to really come more to who they are and make sure that we are meeting them where they are with the appropriate pronouns, with the appropriate um, needs that they have, with the appropriate thing. And so it's something that we're trying to talk about more internally and trying to work through on how to be as inclusive and as welcoming and and as arms outreached as possible to say, we want to help those that are being victims of intimate partner violence. As a relative outsider, but with knowledge of what you all do at, at Genesis, I think that that is incredibly admirable that nobody ever thought Genesis doesn't want to help everyone. They're just not equipped to help everyone. And what you've said here in this episode, and what I hope people are hearing at home is that you are ready to rise up. You are equipped to a greater degree than maybe a lot of people realized. And what you want to do is serve everybody mm-hmm. equally so they have a safe place Correct. and a way to rebuild mm-hmm. their lives. Correct. And we also want to be able to acknowledge the complexity of these situations. You know, we've talked about intersectionality before within this podcast, which means the idea that somebody is experiencing intimate partner violence, but also at the exact same time struggling and experiencing active abuse or trauma or um, uh, discrimination in multiple different areas. And so I think it's really important for Genesis to be a part of a coordinated community response, which mm-hmm. be the idea of acknowledging that we can't do it all for everyone. And so we want to make sure that we have strong relationships within the community of other agencies who are doing things very well and and being able to say, here's what we can offer this individual. What could you be able to support this individual? And there are far more people who have rallied around domestic violence against women, presumably heterosexual women, than have come to a place where they're rallying around some of these other causes. And it's because of these other barriers in place that are sending us messages that those who are other are other and they can seek help where they can seek help. We haven't had time in this conversation to address victim blaming. Um, You know, we have worked for so many years trying to remove the idea that somehow it's her fault. He tells her it's her fault, and then the jury told her it was her fault, and then her boss probably said, or her best friend, look, he's a great guy, why are you doing this? Um, I think for those who tend to victim blame, um, when they begin judging same-sex couples or trans this and that, I think it would be easy, really easy to blame. 
um, you got yourself in this own mess, right? Mm -hmm. If you were just a, a real man. If you were quote unquote normal. Yes. Mm -hmm. Whatever right. that, what is yeah, that by the way? I don't even know, don't what, know what that, that is. is but yeah. that's how people think. Exactly. And again, this messaging that's coming down via legislation and other things, which only puts a label on others versus normal, right? I think is not going the distance to, to bring people around in great numbers to Ron, give to causes that... Yeah you know, are helping I think their what neighbors. the domestic violence movement is trying to do is in acknowledging that in, in past years, we have spoken in language that was all types of women could be victims of domestic violence. What we were trying to do is we were trying to break through the myth that there is one type of woman who was abused because she brought it upon herself, right? So in trying, but so we were trying to get away from that by saying all women could be b victims of domestic violence. And yet what we maybe unintentionally did within that is then we didn't also allow space for specific stories to be told and specific circumstances or considerations to be highlighted and to be educated in in regards to intimate partner abuse. More women are abused than women. But what is it like for a trans woman specifically to experience intimate partner violence? So I think what the movement's trying to do also is just get more specific in bringing space to specific considerations for specific groups of people or individuals. And to understand intersectionality that that person who's abused at home, that transgender woman might go to the grocery store mm -hmm. and be made fun of or spat upon mm -hmm. that or all, be denied a service. Right. That all people could be victims of domestic violence if an abuser chose to victimize them, but their experience of victimization may be different than somebody else's based on their situation and their circumstances. And I certainly appreciate what you all were trying to do by saying any woman is susceptible but that doesn't speak to the fact that there are specific zip codes. You mentioned a zip code, 216, mm -hmm. 75216, that there is a zip code and a place that lacks resources, but also something's happening in that community where it's a way of life. Well, not just in that zip code. Um, but there women, are specific areas yeah. that are more, for whatever reason, right. again, complex. African-American women are assaulted more than white women. Period. That's it. That's and no matter the, where you live. Yeah. Uh, but that is what we particularly went to that um, zip code because there are more incidents of that. Again, underreported, marginalized community, on and on and on and yeah. on. Yeah. I think, though, when I'm hearing Jordan, it's an easy fix. We continue to say all women can experience it experience this if their partner chooses to abuse right and i but then we can kind of go through that includes women of color that includes trans women that includes and just two or three little additions could really change the conversation or the conception of who we are and i think it would be easy and the outright reach to communities to make sure that they're aware right. that we're here for them too if you or someone you know is in an abusive relationship you can get help or give help at genesisshelter.org or by calling or texting our 24-7 crisis hotline team at 214-946-HELP, 214-946-4357. Data and statistics referred to in this series come from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence and the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Genesis Women's Shelter and Support is grateful to our partners for the podcast series on intimate partner violence in LGBTQIA plus relationships, including media host Ron Corning, On Air Media, the Conference on Crimes Against Women, House of Rebirth, and the countless number of courageous survivors of intimate partner violence who contribute to the education, safety, and healing of all people by sharing their stories and experiences. Thank you for being you.